Joining me today is Dustin Kirkland, VP of Engineering at ChainGuard. Uh, today, we're going to have Dustin back. He's had quite a year. We're going to talk a little bit about a bunch of things he's done this year. He's been a little bit of an analyst. Uh, he's done a little traveling, and he's got an exciting new position. But Dustin, first of all, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, what a great podcast. I really enjoy it. I check in every once in a while and always interested in uh, in the content. Well, fantastic. Well, listen, you know, we always want to start with like the most important thing that people come to this podcast is uh, men's fashion. And, you know, a while back, you posted a picture with uh, Vince Cerf, who I believe is the uh, the father of TCPIP, kind of a legendary person in IT. Uh, if you don't know who he is, go, you know, go read the Wikipedia. That's a little homework. But more importantly, you took a picture with him and I think it was at a conference and you're both wearing a three-piece suit. And I, I think I think you're a dapper person, Dustin. I wanted to uh, get your your sense of uh, you know fashion advice for everyone. Is, is the three-piece suit, is it is it like is it back? Did it ever leave? Is it just your way of standing out at a conference? You know, tell I, us you know, I kind of I've kind of stumbled into a custom tailored suit uh, walking around Budapest, Romania. I was there for work in um 2016 i think uh and my wife had been telling me look you need to get a, a better suit and i wandered into this uh this tailor and was just asking questions and before i knew it i had uh bought two suits i was measured and delivered uh, that was a sunday they were delivered to my hotel on friday they were incredible i stayed uh friends with the uh tailor uh he made three more suits for me uh, and he's actually, um, yeah, he's actually in technology now and, uh, we're set to, to meet up in the, the States for dinner uh, sometime soon. So yeah, I totally stumbled into this, but man, I, I do enjoy being well dressed. Uh, so take that for what it's worth. Well, uh, I think it's fantastic was, I say, because I think it's a way to stand out. Like, you know, like it's amazing how often what you wear, like sort of does. So I think in tech, right. You're kind of going opposite. You're going a little bit more formal. And I think it is a way that people get used to kind of seeing it, which is cool. Yeah, um, it, it, it gave me the opportunity to meet Vince Cerf, believe it or not. I was uh, at a, a Google conference. I had given a talk. Uh, remarkably, he walked into the uh, to, into the little room. Uh, I had a line of people to talk to after uh, the, the talk. One of them is Vince Cerf. He comes up and I'm like scared, afraid of what he's going to ask me. And what he comes to tell me is, that he loved that I was wearing a three piece suit. Uh, so I have, uh, I have one of my favorite pictures uh, I'll treasure forever uh, of myself and, and Vince serve. Of course he, if you don't know, he always dresses to the nines uh, in a suit. My only regret is I wasn't wearing a tie. So oh, I jacked the shirt, the, the vest uh, pants, but I wasn't wearing a tie. And if I had one thing to do over again, I would have, I would, I would have been wearing the tie in that. Hey man, I think you did well. We'll put a picture, uh, uh, link it to the picture so everyone can see. We'll even make it look the uh, chapter art of this <laughs> segment so you can, everyone can see it. And of course, uh, Vince Surf, he, he of course looks great, but, uh, listen, so, you know, one of the things, you know, we've been talking on and off this year and I know you've sort of like had this exciting year. So it's kind of, I thought it'd be fun to kind of bring you on because you've done a bunch of different, interesting things. So let's kind of start with one of the things that I thought was real cool that you kind of did. I, I'm going to call it like you became like a little part-time analyst kind of doing some work for a Silicon Angle and the Cube. So maybe tell us like, what are those things and like, how did this whole opportunity come about? Yeah, absolutely. I'm super passionate about it. I mean, I, I enjoy, uh, you know, participating in the, uh, let's call it the media. Uh, and that's what we're doing here. Uh, you and I, Brandon. Um, Silicon Angle is an analyst firm. The Cube is the video half of that uh, analyst firm, uh, founded by uh, John Furrier and Dave Vellante. Uh, I was a guest uh, on on the Cube um, a number of times, and it's a uh, it was a great opportunity for me to get out there and tell at the time the canonical and Ubuntu story, um, and then again uh, uh, the Google story. So I, you know, I was a guest a couple of times. I got to be uh, good friends with John and really admire him. I look up to him as a as a friend and mentor. Um, he invited me to to join him as a, a guest analyst, and so I, I flew out to uh, San Francisco and and covered Google Next with him a couple of months ago. And I actually I just got back last night from uh, KubeCon Chicago, where again I uh, I joined him and um, and Savannah uh, Peterson uh, as they covered KubeCon, and it's just it's so much fun uh, to get to meet so many people and enable them to tell their story. I, I guess to an extent that's what you're doing here with the 
software defined talk podcast, uh, giving people the opportunity, the voice, the microphone to, to tell their story. Uh, this is that just been in, you know, a little bit more bite sized chunks. Now, what did you, because I think they do a pretty, uh, I don't know, a pretty robust setup at these conferences. It's almost like there's like a, a big desk, like a video. It's almost like a live report. I, I mean, I think you kind of put in here like Sports Center. It's like on on a site uh, Sports Center or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's so, super cool. If you if you haven't seen it or you, maybe you've seen it and didn't know what it was, you go to almost any tech conference. I think they do uh, 100 conferences per year, which is, you know, averaging more than one a week. They've got an East Coast and a West Coast team. Uh, yeah, they set up a usually like a, a a twenty by twenty take over a twenty by t- twenty typical booth space. Have a little elevated platform of three or four cameras, uh, a desk, three or four chairs, microphones, um, outstanding array of guests. Uh, usually for ten fifteen minute spots, um, lights, a uh, little bit of makeup. They'll get rid of that uh, shine on your forehead, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's a first class operation. Uh, and then what goes on in the back end, you know, it's live streamed to the internet at uh, thecube.net. The um, but man, John has been, uh, and the, the Cube team, they've been early to the AI party. They've got tens of thousands of videos all ingested into, um, uh, all transcribed to text. You know, the, the recordings mm-hmm. are transcribed to text, all indexed by OpenAI. Uh, and you can search almost any term that you've seen uh, that, that you've heard and find, uh, indexed into every single video, someone talking about something, anything that you would search for. It's a pretty incredible setup. That is, it is pretty cool. So what it was like, kind of take us behind the scenes. What would, uh, how does it work? Do they kind of give you a rundown of guests and you do a little prep or you, do they just want you to kind of come on sort of like just react to announcements? Like kind of what's the, the behind the scenes production uh, of how topics get selected? Um, yeah, no, there's a, there's a good array of guests. The the team does a lot of work in prep for the show to, to line that up. Um, I, yeah, I get, uh, I'm a part-time analyst. We'll get into the, the full-time day job. So, you know, this is something that I was able to jump on. Um, of course, with a full-time job, I'll try to avoid any conflicts of interest, uh, you know, just to be professional there. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, it's a lot of fun b- behind the scenes. Um, you know, we'll do a little bit of off camera prep with the guests, get comfortable, uh, chat a little bit about, you know, a couple of our topics and then cameras rolling and it's, it's live. There's no, there's no, uh, cutting and editing after the fact it's, uh, straight to the internet, Brandon. <laughs> love it i love it that's fantastic all right well maybe take us behind the scenes then so you you know you've been on the vendor side for a long time then you've been doing this part-time analyst side and then you're going to be back on the vendor side we'll talk about more so what do you know what secrets have you learned uh about being on the analyst side that you can share with all the people that have to interact with analysts out there (laughs) oh i don't want to give away all the analyst secrets nor have i learned all the analyst secrets in all of you know a couple of couple of months of doing this uh i do have you know infinitely more respect and appreciation for the effort that analysts put into their uh to their work to their research um but especially the value of objectivity you know that's something that uh, as a customer of analysts, I've appreciated, but I, I don't think I entirely appreciated or understood as much as I do now. Um, it's easy for you and I to have a hot take and an opinion on something. Uh, it's it's different to go and spend some time to to really dig in, uh, do some research, and let the, the the data objectively speak for itself. Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, that's cool. Well, it's really exciting. So it's cool that you'll be continuing on. So we'll have to uh, tell everyone. Well, in fact, you can see Dustin not only get his hot takes, watch his interviewing, you can check in on his fashion. Sounds like there's a reason for him to buy uh, more suits, which is really what's most important. Now, well, let's let's use some of these new found analyst skills. And more importantly, let's use some of the hot take skills. So KubeCom Chicago, you just mentioned just recently happened. So uh, everyone's kind of doing their recap. So let's start with you, you know, kind of the, the broad question. What were your key takeaways from KubeCon this year? Yeah, it was great to be back uh, at KubeCon. I missed the last couple of years uh, while I spent time in financial services uh, where we were heavy users of open source Linux, uh, lots of Kubernetes I found there. Um, but it didn't bring me to you know the conference, the builder conferences mm-hmm. like this. So it was great to be back at KubeCon for the first time in uh, a couple of years since before the pandemic. Um, I mean, not surprised if if you've you know turned on a news station anytime anywhere ai 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 uh, was hot topic uh the opening keynote on tuesday morning 
lead it was you know percolated throughout lots of the uh, lots of the talks um and i think yeah that there was a lot of focus on what it's going to take to make kubernetes a better platform for ai jobs uh, a couple of people noted that kubernetes was not designed with ai in mind it was very much designed first for web app hosting uh and then eventually to some extent for batchy serverless type jobs um both of which are close to, but not exactly the same as machine learning, um, large language models, inferencing. And there's, you know, a little bit more infrastructure that needs to be in place. Uh, there's also a lot of complexity in Kubernetes that's still exposed to the end users that, you know, I, I don't think we, and I'm going to say we as part of the Kubernetes community, again, I, I don't think we necessarily need or certainly want to expose to end users. So yeah, there was a lot of talk about that. Uh, and then finally, security, and to some extent, that'll lead into you know the the, the, the later talk we'll have. Uh, but security always critical, and maybe more critical than ever before. Yeah, that that all makes sense. So now on AI, because everyone's I've kind of read everything, and I've I've seen a lot of people talking about it. What's your take around? You know, like someone else uh, um, kind of mentioned, it's like everything's just being dipped in AI. Like everyone's sort of just <laughs> like stapling on AI to their their marketing and things like that. Um, kind of what's your takeaway? Was there anything that stood out for you, I guess, on two, two fronts here? It was like, is there something like new and different? And then, of course, everything is just moving so fast, right? Like, you know, literally it's like open AI, same week as KubeCon, you know, I don't know, a ton of announcements out of there, right? So is there any place that you see beyond just sort of like Kubernetes, if you will, being better at supporting AI, that a place where we can like, we really think AI is going to add something that is significant that we can kind of touch and feel right now? Yeah, I, I don't know well enough the demographic of your uh, listeners, but hopefully some of them can remember the early days of the internet. And I'm talking, you know, the nine back to Vent Surf, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we're we're talking here at ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, all the way up to you know, call it the dot com boom. So the late nineties, everything was dipped in uh, in getting online, right? Uh, if you've seen the uh, the the Vince Vaughn. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> movie the intern getting on the line right it was it, it was all about getting online and that's where we're at with ai it is uh it is quite the topic because i think we're looking at the exact or, or a fundamental shift on the same order of magnitude as uh as what you know the how the internet how the internet disrupted typical businesses that's exactly where we're at with ai um, it's still a little bit early in that we haven't seen exactly how that's going to play out everywhere, but it's going to play out everywhere. And so it's a hot topic because people realize that this could be, you know, this this could be the fundamental thing that really disrupts who's at the top, or it could be the thing that cements who's at the top uh, to be at the top, you know, for another generation until, you know, whatever the next uh, disruptive thing that might come along, you know, but probably two or more decades later. Uh, considering, you know, we're talking about the dawn of the internet, which was the 90s. Here we are in the 2020s. It it might be another 20 or 30 years before uh, before something as disruptive comes about. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's well said. I think it kind of just comes down to, it's sort of, uh, we're in the middle, if you will. This is the sausage making and it's like, no one has any of the answers. And I guess what's exciting about it is like, I don't know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are going to try like a whole bunch of stuff. Like most of it won't work. And yep. then something will emerge and we will all look back on it and be like, yeah, of course, of course, that's the way you were going to use AI. And of course, that company is really successful, which is always fun. I think it's like uh, just a fun time to be involved in technology. Well, let's talk a little bit about KubeCon, uh, the conferences just in general. Is, was there anything about, you know, the conference? Is it different from a vendor conference anyway? Any kind of specific, uh, interesting things that stood out to you? Well, I mean, it is a vendor conference. I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's worth um hiding that. Uh, there is, you know, there's a great developer track. Uh, a number of my colleagues gave some amazing talks uh, at KubeCon. I would I'd certainly recommend uh, people to, to check out some of the talks. Um, there is a developer day. Monday of the conference is the developer day, and that's before the expo floor um, is open. But Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, there's a conference floor where I would estimate tens of millions of dollars were spent. <laughs> Um, advertising, you know, pushing um, services, goods and services uh, built around that cloud native landscape. 
uh, including ours. You know, this isn't this isn't a condemnation. Uh, I think the business model of open source, thankfully, from my perspective, has matured to a point where tens of millions of dollars get poured into, uh, you know, the, the 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 pipeline development, such that successful companies can emerge out of the back end. Uh, and continue to pour, you know, a ton of that into great software development. Um, again, open source software development. Again, so I think it's a, I think it's a virtuous circle. I think without uh, a vendor conference around something like this, it would still be on the fringes. So, you know, I would say kudos to the Cloud Native um, Foundation and the the Linux Foundation um, for putting something together like this and, it, and growing it to a level that. You know, dry, it drove the economy for uh, a, a, a segment of Chicago for the week, uh, as it does for every city. Uh, just, you know, trying to get an Uber to the airport uh, was, uh, you know, put money in someone's pocket, you know. <laughs> for sure. Well, what do you, you know, the other important uh, subject that's come out of uh, the Chicago event was, uh, you know, Chicago style pizza. Do you, when you come down, do you have a hot take on that? Good, bad? Are you a New York style, Chicago style, Detroit? Something? Uh, I do. I do like a. I do like a good wood fired, uh, a good a good wood fired pizza, and I, I don't know how much Chicago style pizza makes it into a wood fired oven. I, I haven't, uh, I have not explored the far enough into the culinary delights of Chicago's pizza. Uh, I think I appreciate it for what it is, which is you know, uh, lasagna on bread, uh, almost, <laughs> or it's as heavy to me as uh, lasagna and bread together. Um, I guess that's not fair. There's pasta and lasagna. Um, I don't know. I'm teasing. I'm teasing about. No, I'm no listen. There have been some strong takes in the software defined talk this week. That's probably <laughs> been the strongest takes have been on uh, the pizza. There's. I don't. There's. There's. I'll just say, join the software defined talk if you want more on pizza because uh, there's right. some people that like it and there's some people that are are adamant that it's not good. So I don't know. I haven't had it in a while. I think I'll appreciate it for what it is. I. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna eat a Chicago style pizza on a weekly basis uh, anytime soon. <laughs> Well, if you do, we're going to all have to get some new suits. We're all going to you know, grow a few sizes. All right, Indeed. let's get, get on to uh, your exciting uh, announcement here. So, you've been, like I said, you've been doing some other stuff, but uh, ChangeGuard it came out here. One, uh, you know, you've joined them, and uh, they've raised a bunch of money. So why don't you take us through both? Like, tell us who ChangeGuard is, how you got there, and like a little bit about the background of the company. Yeah, you bet. Chain Guard is a, um, it's the, uh, our tagline is the secure source for open source. Um, we're in the su- software supply chain security space. Try saying that five times fast. Uh, we, um, we help secure, you know, all the software that goes into um, an organization uh, that they need to, uh, that they need to, to run. And typically that's running now inside of a container inside of Kubernetes itself. Um, and so there's often a stack of technologies. You, you know, you, you write some code that, that you're going to use either internally inside of a, you know, an internet application. You write some code that you're going to ship to your customers. You write some code that uh, powers your software as a service. Uh, typically, you're not writing all of that code. You're usually writing less than 1% of the code that you actually, you're actually running. Um, the vast majority of that code is being sourced, probably open sourced from uh, from libraries somewhere, and that could be, you know, typically Python libraries or Golang libraries. It could be Rust or PHP or something else. But you know, usually you're building on top of uh, certainly a, a, a tool chain that could be compiled code or interpreted code. Uh, typically, that's a whole b- bunch of libraries. That's everything that you would, you know, include or import into into your code. Uh, and so you're talking about a lot of code that you didn't necessarily write. Someone's got to package that. And there's a couple of different ways to to, to obtain that code uh, and package it. Uh, and we've got a, a unique way of doing it at ChainGuard where we can help secure that entire uh, supply chain of, uh, of software. Um, we, uh, we did just announce our Series B, uh, raised 61 million. And um, yeah, it's an exciting time. I, I do love this stage of a startup. Um, you know, I think product market fit is is there. We've got great response from our our customers, uh, and now it's really about scaling that engine. And you know, in the in the ideal case, we're helping uh, change the world for the better uh, in terms of software security. 
All right, exciting. Well, first of all, I'm gonna go back and correct myself. It is chain guard. I keep saying chain guard. I don't know. Just why. like no, nah, just like the bike, like like a bicycle, right? I'm chain say, guard. I also want to call it chainsaw. So I'm just gonna apologize like ten times. Like I'm saying it right. So chain guard. So we got it right here. Um, so you know, software supply chain is sort of like I don't know. I I think it's probably been a problem forever, but I feel like the solar winds, you know fiasco if you will let's call it sort of like highlighted you know the need for it everywhere so maybe kind of start at the beginning around uh because you have a bunch of different offerings in inside a chain guard so who can use it let's just start with the basic stuff it's sort of like if i'm just a developer by myself and i'm maybe building some stuff like how can i use it what does it cost me you know what what's available how would i kind of integrate it into like my day-to-day workflow yeah, first of all, uh, I think the SolarWinds uh, identification of the problem is a great way to look at it. And I you know, encourage anyone who wants to understand like what can go wrong uh, in the software supply chain. That's a great example. Um, and there was an article that was published by Sequoia, which uh, led our Series A, um, an interview with our CEO and founder, uh, Dan Lawrence, uh, that references, you know, the, the, the SolarWinds Solar Winds Day, uh, let's call it as, you know, one of the, the founding moments and one of the, the, the moments in time uh, that explain the the existence of Chain Guard. Um, so there's a great article that that dives deep, much deeper into that. And maybe we can link to it from uh, uh, from the from the podcast page. Um, w- who can use it? Anyone can use it. And, you know, we are built uh, we're an open source company built around open source, but we also have commercial products as well. Um and having spent more than two decades now working on open source and seen a lot of uh, a lot of different um, commercial models emerge, I think uh, more than ever now it's it's important to be clear about what's open source and what's commercial, and you know hopefully uh, both both users of the open source and customers of the commercial product uh, will just appreciate a little bit of transparency there. Um, so our 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 images. Our open source images are free for Head. Head being the latest and greatest version of you know any given open source uh, package or image. Uh, that's free to use. Um, it's free to download, and you know for for developers uh, who generally want to be on latest and greatest and roll with latest and greatest releases. That's that's our Wolfie uh, distro, and those are free. Um, our commercial product is built around those uh, those images, uh, but we add the capability of pinning versions to something older than uh, than head. Uh, typically, I, I think anyone who spent some time in enterprise will appreciate that uh, production software. You often need to control when you update or upgrade to a newer version. Sometimes there's some internal CI/CD. Uh, that your tests need to pass. Sometimes you need to pin a certain version for a, a particular uh, feature or for you know some some change that you're not ready uh, to to take on yet. Um, or maybe it's the retail season. We're getting into the retail season. I, I've served a number of um, a number of customers that that certainly their sales cycles revolve around a uh, a Black Friday or through the Christmas season. At which point. Uh, change needs to be minimized until you know that that critical retail season uh, uh, we pass through that. Um, and so, for the most part, the customers that we're serving want a little bit more control over uh, what their software bill of materials, which is something we should get in there and define, uh, includes. And being more specific than just give me the latest and greatest uh, Postgres database, just give me the you know latest and greatest GoLang toolchain, or give me the latest and greatest Ruby. Um, stack, uh, which is usually what a developer wants, but that might not always be the right answer for the, you know, the production hosted uh, software as a service. Gotcha. All right. So it's good. <clears throat> Everyone can use, uh, if you will, the latest and greatest images, and then many enterprises are going to want to pin to, uh, I think, older versions. That for sure. So that that makes total sense. So let's go in and talk a little bit about one of these images. I think uh, I'd like to the tagline here was sort of a minimal hardened images uh, signed. So why don't we start with like, you know, it's easy. I think, yes, we all know what minimal means, but like maybe take us through, like how do you create a minimal image? Like how does that kind of happen? What does that mean to, to everyone that's using these things? Yeah. So let's start at the finish line and work our way backwards. What does the customer ultimately want? They want secure software. What does that mean? Usually that means zero CVEs, uh, 
which is vulnerabilities, known uh, vulnerabilities and exploits. Um, so our our goal is to produce images that have zero known CVEs in them. And we do that through a combination of first minimizing what goes into that image, stripping out absolutely everything that is unnecessary. I've spent a law I've spent most of my career building distributions, trying to make the environment as comfortable as possible, trying to make it as usable as possible. Um, when, as it turns out, there's typically not a human on the inside of this image. All it, you know, th- these aren't desktops. These aren't servers that someone's logging into. Uh, it's, it's packaged software that needs to run typically on a, a, and expose an API, expose a network port, maybe do some work, crunch that, crunch some numbers and spit out some data. That's all software on the inside of there. And if we can minimize how much software is on the inside of that, that um, either compiled container image or that compiled binary, we can drastically, drastically reduce uh, the, the footprint of exposure. Um, the more code, the more libraries, the more packages that are, uh, that are in some software, uh, the more opportunities there are for uh, there to be exploits for someone on the outside who's trying to break that software, maybe break into that software, uh, that gives them that many more opportunities if you, you know, over, um, over provision the software on, on the inside. So, so it really starts with being um, maniacal almost about removing anything that's unnecessary. Uh, and then the second piece is all about velocity, uh, keeping up with the national vulnerability database, uh, tracking all of the CVEs that might apply to the software um, and then triaging that and de- making a determination, you know, is the software in, in ChainGuard's images affected? It might not be simply because of, you know, what I've spent the last two minutes <laughs> explaining. It may just not be applicable, which is great. Um, when it is applicable, then we need to assess um, its, uh, we need to triage its severity and it could go anywhere from critical uh, to high to medium to low. Uh, and then, you know, based on that triage, uh, we certainly want to eliminate the, the the vulnerabilities wherever possible, uh, and typically that means going back upstream and trying to find the uh, the version or the fixes, uh, and then updating our packages accordingly. Uh, once we update those packages, put it through our own quality assurance, um, continuous integration uh, testing, uh, and then publish that new image. Uh, Put the certainly put the, the 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 new version on head available in the uh, in the open source registry, and then any of our customers who depend on that will push uh, newly rebuilt now with the CVEs eliminated um, images to their registries as well. Got it. Okay, so it's good. So it's sort of a minimal, just like just what you need. Hardened means that you've applied all the known uh, imi- you know fixes for anything that's out there. And then, of course, why don't you talk about signing it, right? Because that's sort of like, how do we know we actually have the right thing? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I mentioned SBOM before, which is such a fun word to uh, to say. Uh, it sounds like a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And SBOM is a software bill of materials. Um, it's a really sexy name for a pretty boring, uh, typically YAML file uh, that includes metadata about what's inside of an image. Um, it, that's usually, you know, a list of, of packages and versions, uh, and other, um, metadata about the image. Uh, it'll also include checksums, uh, hashes, uh, digests of the, of, you know, the software and, um, the configuration even can be part of that as well. And then the signature is typically a, a public private key, um, set of signatures that help you ensure that, this thing was signed by something that or someone that you trust uh, typically. So software bill of materials, this is, you know, starting to really make headlines in the U.S. federal government space as we have uh, what I think is a, a very important push for more secure software running our infrastructure. And it's everything from civil, um, you know, governments, civic governments, uh, to our defense contractors and straight into our uh, national defense itself. Um, you know, software attacks uh, can be as dangerous and harmful and deadly potentially as 
um, you know, physical attacks in, in the real world, it certainly can manifest itself in that way. So really important. There's a number of standards around this, uh, one of which is uh, known as FedRAMP. And I would say um, a, a number of our customers uh, that that seek out ChainGuard for our product, for our solution, are looking to satisfy their FedRAMP requirements around um, eliminating vulnerabilities in their software within, you know, very tight timelines and SLAs. Yeah. And for everyone, probably, if you're not familiar with FedRAMP, it, you know, it's one way to basically one standard you usually need to comply with to sell anything to the federal government or the DOD. And there's lots of other standards as or well. Contractors but, work. Yeah. Contractors yeah. working for the, the federal government, the DOD as well, you know. But I think this is one of those times, you know, sometimes you can, uh, you know, not that I would ever do this. Sometimes you want to roll your eyes at different standards, but sometimes you want to flip around and say, um, a lot of these, there's a lot of value, even if you're not, even if you don't have to like, you know, deal with FedRAMP. I think uh, the S-bomb, as you said, it's kind of funny. It is, as I say it, it is kind of seems negative, but like, uh, but putting that aside, that connotation, you're right. It's sort of like, it's probably one of these things like, you know, the sooner you do it in your career, like whatever you're building, right? The sooner that you kind of do it, um, the better off you're going to be. Because eventually someone's going to ask you, or you just may ask yourself, right? You're going to have to go back and figure out like, what's actually in this thing? Because any project that gets even reasonably big, right? No one's going to remember it all. So, you know, do, you know, if you will do the hard, it's like eating your vegetables, do it right up front and you'll feel, right. feel a lot better. Well, now how many images? That's, I think- that's a good point. Uh, I just want to underline that one, one thing you said there. Um, you know, we talk a lot about shifting left. Uh, this is about starting left, you know? So if, if you're able to do this from the beginning, uh, you know, build on top of a, a, a secure base, there is a lot less pain and effort and costs and expense and, uh, you know, uh, overhead in later having to, to shift left. So that's one thing that I think some of our earliest adopters and early customers are seeing the benefit of starting here as opposed to sometime later having to make some adjustment. Okay. Now, we, now we're going to lock things down. Uh, that, that is often very difficult and there's a lot of wasted energy and calories spent doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So what um, we think about all these images, one, maybe just define w- what an image is, just make sure is this like Docker container? Is this a VM? Like what, what actually is an image in this case? Yeah. So uh, let me give one other fundamental piece of information. So we talk about packages and we talk about images. Our package format in, in ChainGuard uh, is actually an APK, which is an Alpine package, uh, which is different than an APK, the Android package. It's kind of unfortunate that it's the same three letters and we're talking about packages on different operating systems. Um, but our package base is an Alpine package, uh, which is equivalent but different from an RPM package that you would find on a Fedora or a Red Hat or a Deb uh, that you would find on a, a Debian or Ubuntu-based system. Um, so we use APK and there's a handful of fundamental differences. Um, I, having myself packaged a ton of Debian packages uh, and a couple of, of RPMs as well, uh, there's, a, there's a real elegance to APKs and it, it's well suited to that minimal, um, to that, that minimal, that minimal package. Um, and there's a lot of logic that we don't have to worry about as much inside of an APK, especially around upgrades. There's a lot of somewhat brittle logic that makes its way into devs and RPMs to ensure that you upgrade, you know, successfully from one version to the next uh, with container. And I'll get to images here in a second, but with packages and, and containers, the methodology is much more of the destroy the container and start a new one. And so there's less of that inline serial logic of, okay, if I was on this version and this file was in this place, now I need to move it to this place and, uh, run said over some configuration file and change this thing. You don't really need that in a world where you stop the, you, you kill the container and you start a new one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the first piece packages. Um, and that package repository is, you know, uh, big and growing, uh, but that's the first fundamental piece. And we need packages of the open source software of the tool chains of the third party apps. Um, you could even build your own, you know, unique and proprietary enterprise packages in, in that format as well. Um, packages are the building blocks that go into an image. An image is an image is an archive. Um, it, it's fundamentally a, a, a file system uh, that's Linux-like. And I use the word Linux in a weird way. There's no kernel. 
there's no, um, there, the, these, these images don't typically boot. They go straight to running in a, usually a Kubernetes world, but could run, you know, almost anywhere. It's a uh, OCI compatible, um, Docker like or Docker image, uh, um, in, in, in essence, um, that image is built from packages. So you've got some manifest of packages that get installed, um, laid down on a file system, maybe some configuration and some, some instructions on how to run that. Um, and then that image is what runs and you could run it locally, uh, using, you know, a, a, a Docker, uh, binary locally, uh, you can load it into a registry and run it in a in a Kubernetes, you know, or or any other OCI compatible container orchestration system. Gotcha. So, are you providing both the packages and the container, or, or and images in this case, or like can I get yeah. just the package and do that? And yeah, do you, you, mm-hmm. yeah, you need both. I mean, as a if you were you know a human sitting on a command line and you wanted to apk install a package, that's you know the the command that you would use, which would be like an apt-get or a um, a, a yum install. Um, that's usually the starting point for a developer who's creating their own image. An image, you typically Docker run uh, that mm-hmm. that image, and that image is then you know running and maybe exposes a service on a port, or uh, you drop into a shell or something like that if you wanted to interact with it. At scale, you're running dozens of these, maybe hundreds of these um, through a, a Helm chart. So Helm's the next level of abstraction. If APK is the is the install a package, Docker is the run my uh, image. Helm would be construct this giant service that has a web front end and a database back end and some sidecar and some monitoring and all of those pieces, you know, you would, you would typically build a helm chart for that level of, of, um, that level of interaction. All right, cool. So kind of got like everything available to me. If I want the lowest level all the way up to like, just give me the latest thing. Now, is there any relationship, you know, because the thing I think people maybe would think about is, you know, Docker hub, right. You know, there's lots of places to get images today, like, I don't know. Are you replacing that? Is are you working with them? Like, what's the relationship there, if any? Yeah, there's there's lots of registries out there. Uh, we we have our own registry, uh, the Chain Guard registry, CGR.dev. Um, uh, but there's you know GCR.io. There's Docker Hub. There's uh, various different um, there's various different registries. Our customers typically want to run their own uh, registry, which is certainly, you know, the, the couple of years I spent in financial services and out in the industry, you're going to have your own, you know, repository of, of software, your own repository of images. Um, so a, a typical enterprise customer would, uh, would mirror those images or the subset of images that they need into mm-hmm. their registry. And by the way, a registry is, is typically just some um, object storage, you know, like a, like an S3 or, or, or similar. Uh, and a database that maps where to find uh, an image to some metadata, you know, a given a given image name or tag or, or version number. So there's not a lot of mystery around a registry. It's not a super complicated thing. Uh, then there are image registries all over the place. Okay. And then kind of to kind of wrap up on the subject, just give us a sense, like how many, you know, packages and images are out there? What's the, what's available? Oh, th- thousands and growing uh, every single day. Um, you know, that the, at the package level, I think you'd find most of what you need in, uh, in Wolfie, uh, that you would find in almost any other distro at this point. Um, images were, uh, were being a little bit more thoughtful about, uh, not more thoughtful, that, that sounds like we're not being thoughtful about packages. <laughs> we certainly are. We're a little more directed with the images, building the images that our customers need and want. Um, so there, there are plenty of generally available open source images, uh, you know, again, on the order of thousands of those available as well. Um, my effort, you know, leading the engineering team at ChainGuard uh, is very much serving the needs of our customers and, um, you know, burning down that backlog of, of unique images that we need to build uh, for the customers that are um, that we're serving. All right, you just heard it there. Everyone, email Dustin directly with all your requests for new images. I'm sure. I'm sure he. <laughs> Let me have them. Yeah, let's hear it. Love, love that. Okay, and just to go over kind of the the free forever. I don't. I that's actually. Let me uh, take that back. Free of charge is Wolfie. I'm gonna spell it. It's W O L F I. Right. That's, that's right. Open yeah. Our uh, so yeah the 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 um the quick story there. Our um, mascot is an octopus, 
and a wolfy octopus is the smallest octopus in the world. Um, you got to Google the pictures for a wolfy octopus. It's like the size of a, a your thumbnail or smaller. Uh, it's this adorable little thing. Obviously, we're shooting for the smallest container images in the world. So uh, Wolfie is our beloved uh, mascot. Okay, good. Well, I'll have to look that up and find uh, find some pictures of it. That sounds exciting. And then if, for those that want to buy, it is uh, there's Change Guard, which is the commercially supported uh, project. Images. Yep. And then, yeah, and he said, so typically people buy them in like images or bundles, it sounds like between 10 and 100. Does that kind of? Yeah, happen? I mean, usually that's what you need to. Yeah, most of our customers have a complex stack, um, you know, to, to build their application. Uh, and a typical customer engagement is dozens. Um, uh, and they would buy a bundle of images, support for a bundle of images. They'll tell us, hey, our software stack is. 67 requires 67 different images running in as services in Kubernetes. Um, we'll work with them. Our solutions architects and customer engineers will work with uh, with that customer um, to understand their environment. Um, some of those images will already have on the shelf and are ready to go, and they can get started with immediately. Some are close, and we need to you know make some. Um, uh, you know, some of our customers come and they need something like FIPS um, requirements, FIPS encryption. Uh, um, certification. So we may have a base image without FIPS, and then we need to add uh, FIPS to that. Um, and then occasionally we've got you know new requests for images that we haven't built. Uh, if it's open source, we'll get to work on it with upstream. Um, and there's often a piece of this, which is you know the customer's own. It's their own code that they're running. You know, it's a Java application, and it needs uh, they need to to build their own Java stack. Um, inside of uh, some images. So yeah, that's what a typical engagement with, with Chain Guard looks like. All right. Sounds exciting. It sounds like you guys are doing really well. Everyone, no excuses now not to go uh, get an S-bomb and uh, at least be more secure. So everyone needs to go do it. Now, listen, hey, we're headed into the holiday season. And you know, you and I have been talking on, on and off uh, this past year. So I think maybe let's kind of like change subjects a little bit. You kind of started off this year. Uh, I call it, you know, let you describe it, a little bit of a, a sabbatical. But every sabbatical needs to have a pilgrimage. So I thought maybe we'd talk about uh, why you decided to walk and hike and help. I'm going to make sure I say it right. Is it Camino de, de Santiago? Am I saying that Camino right? Camino de Santiago. Yeah. Okay. Tell us like, what is this thing? What did you do? Yeah. So look, this has been one of the most incredible years of, of my life. Uh, and I, I don't say that lightly. Um, I took nine months off, uh, almost, um, and having spent, a quarter of a century, almost 25 years working uh, pretty much nonstop. Uh, and if you've been around me, you know that when I work, I really pour my entirety of my heart and soul into whatever I'm working on. Uh, man, it's just, that's exhausting and more exhausting than I think I'd even realized. Um, and so I got this opportunity to take some time off. And one of the first things I did uh, was start thinking about, hey, how am I going to spend this? And I love a good long hike. Uh, and I've done uh, 100 miles and seven days at a time, several times around the world. I've, I've you know, done some backcountry hiking through Scotland and Switzerland and New Zealand and uh, around the US as well. Um, but I wanted to do something a bit different. And so a uh, good friend of mine who was in a similar place in his career where he had some time off, uh, he and I on a, um, I don't want to even say on a whim because we put a lot of time into this. Uh, we started looking at like, where could we go? Uh, what could we do? And one of the, one of the things that kept coming up was hiking the Camino de Santiago. Uh, and so that's what we set out to do. We started in, uh, Porto, uh, Lisbon and hiked North for about 170 miles and uh, hiked our way to Santiago de Compostela, which is a um, it's a cathedral in the northwest corner of Spain. Um, and it was just an incredible experience. We spent 14 days, 13 days, sorry, walking. We covered 170 miles. It was about 13 miles a day we were doing. Some days were a little bit longer. Our longest days were maybe 20 miles. Our shortest days were eight or nine um, met a lot of people along the way. It just really, really got, uh, left the laptop. There was no laptop. I had a phone and, you know, checked in occasionally, but like, man, just to put the inbox on hold 
and wake up every morning. And the only thing you have to do is walk about four hours with a backpack to the next town and to be done with that around, you know, noon, have some lunch, maybe a little bit of local, the local cuisine, some, some, some meat, some wine, some cheese. Uh, and like, I don't know, it was so refreshing, Brandon. I can tell you always, every time we talk about it, I can tell it kind of comes through how, how much you got out of it. So I think it's a pretty pop, I don't know, it's reasonably popular trail. So it's like, it's not like you're, I mean, I guess you kind of pass a lot of people doing something similar. Is that kind of uh, a good description of what's going on there? Yeah. I mean, you can read all about it on the Wikipedia page. I'll give you like the, the brief highlights. Uh, the Camino um, hike has, has been, people have been documenting their walk on the Camino de Santiago, which means just road to Santiago, uh, for over a thousand years. There was a, a monk in the 900s AD, uh, I think around 980 AD, uh, that wrote what is widely considered the first travel guidebook, <laughs> uh, which was his walk to Santiago. And he was not the first one to make this walk. It had been around for long enough for him to actually write a, uh, a guidebook uh, on his journey. And that still exists today. It's, it's actually, obviously, I haven't read it, but you know, it's well regarded as like it's exactly what you see in, you know, this stack of DK guidebooks behind me, DK eyewitness guys. You can you can see on your screen at least, uh, Brandon. Uh, he wrote one over a thousand years ago about his hike, where to stay, what what to eat, what to drink, uh, things to do off the beaten path. Um, so people have been walking this for a thousand years. Um, it's it. It, and everyone who completes the journey gets a Compostela, which is this huge scroll papyrus written in Latin that says you completed this uh, this hike to the to the cathedral. Um, the church in Santiago has been doing this again for a, a thousand years. I've got got mine in uh, in my room here. Um, but the other thing that's like historic and interesting about this is that the roads, the path. Uh, was built by the Romans. So we're talking 2000 years old, more right. than one, actually every couple of miles, there would be this giant, um, this giant carved piece of granite with some Roman numerals and Roman text. And those are called, get this milestones. Why? Oh, because right. the awesome. Romans put mile markers every each step along the way. So yes, in software, we talk about milestones uh, product manage. We talk about milestones. Well, we hiked past about 170 milestones on the way, but this was incredible. I'm talking, mm -hmm. uh, we crossed probably a hundred bridges over creeks, streams, rivers built by the Romans again, 2000 years ago. Uh, but yeah, it was an incredible part of history to, you know, walk this trail, um, for, for two solid weeks. Yeah. Um, I remember you telling me kind of offline. I think you said, I asked you like, did you listen to music? Cause I said you were pro mostly unplugged, right? Didn't weren't doing like the podcast yeah. music, just kind of just truly being in the moment as they say. That That's absolutely right. I thought I was going to, I mean, I love podcasts, um, uh, present company included. I love listening to books. Um, and I thought I was going to do a whole bunch of that with all this time in my hands. My AirPods stayed in my pocket pretty much the whole time, uh, walked with a good friend. We chatted about all sorts of things, uh, life, the universe and everything. Um, you know, no public transportation. I didn't, I didn't get into a, a car, a vehicle, a bus a, a, at all for two weeks, uh, everything by foot. It was really an incredible experience. That's pretty cool. And it also said, you know, there's a, a bunch of different uh, accommodations along the way. You told me kind of offline as well, right? So you could stay like, I don't know, let's say something more luxurious or something more minimal. Is that kind of yep. what you do? Yeah. So I would say there's no camping, so there's no tents, um, which I do enjoy. And most of the hikes I've done through, I mentioned New Zealand, Switzerland, Scotland, U S East coast, West coast. Uh, most of that I've done with a, with a tent. Uh, there's no tents here. This is, you know, there's pastoral, I think there's lots of vineyards and pastures and stuff, but it's cities, uh, towns along uh, the Portuguese and, and Spanish coast. Um, the accommodations, it's, it's well, uh, it's well organized for uh, Camino hikers. Um, and what I mean by that is there's lots of places to stay that cater entirely to uh, pilgrims, uh, pellegrinos, as, as we're called on the trail. Um, but there's a range. 
everything from uh, there's free accommodation, usually attached to most of the churches and cathedrals. There's a, what amounts to a hostel. Uh, it's public. It's actually paid for by the state. And there's a voluntary tip that you can leave uh, when you stay. And by a voluntary tip, five to 10 euros, five to $10 is customary, um, but it's free. It, you know, For someone, for pilgrims who don't have that, they're allowed to stay one night for free, um, free of charge. Uh, the accommodations there, it's usually bunk beds in a giant room. Um, everybody's together, men, women, everyone's together. And the it's, you know, basic accommodations. Um, the, the one step up from that, there's a private version of that, private hostels, again, bunk beds, um, a, a big room, 30, 40, 50 bunks. Uh, it's a great way to meet people. Uh, we did that a few times and it, it really is communal. It's everyone doing the same thing you're doing. Uh, people from all over the world. And it's a great way to, to meet some people. Um, there are private hotels and private Airbnbs. Um, I'd never really used booking.com, but booking.com is the way to to um, to book your accommodations. Usually a night or two in advance is, is enough or same day works. Um, here, it, that's anything from an apartment to a, a small hotel. Again, meager c- accommodations. Um, and then occasionally you can find, and, and that's priced, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 euros a piece. Uh, oh, sorry, for two people. So split that in half if you're if you're bunking up and sharing uh, as we were. And then you'll find hotels, a couple of hotels along the way. Um, we stayed in hotels in Porto at the beginning, uh, the first night, and in uh, Santiago the last night or two. Everything else we were enjoying, the um, uh, Auberg, uh, as as it's called, the hostels, uh, or some of the smaller little private hotels or, or private rooms that someone lets out. Well, fantastic. Well, I, you know, I was about to ask you, what did you learn? But I think I'm going to answer for you. I can tell just, you know, from us talking kind of off and on on this podcast throughout the year, like you definitely look like a man who's uh, recharged and excited about <laughs> the, the new opportunity to change. So I'm, I'm actually not going to make you do the testimony. I'll just say, I'll do it for you. It's like, yeah, Dustin has definitely uh, enjoyed his year off and uh, he looks like he's ready to go make change guard very successful as well as, you know, his part-time analyst job. So, all right, Dustin, well, if someone wants to uh, tell you what images they need, or maybe more exciting, they want to ask you about the Camino. What's the best way someone can find you online? Passionate about both. Happy to engage on either. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Dustin Kirkland. Uh, on Twitter, uh, the same on LinkedIn as well. Um, so yeah, happy to connect. Uh, would love to hear your feedback. And I can certainly geek out about, about the Camino uh, with anyone who's thinking about it. That's right. I bet you, you know what? Here's a little hack. I bet you if you ask a question about the Camino and make a request for a new image, <laughs> you probably probably get a little bit more. Uh, yeah, blend the two. Let's talk Who about knows? it. We never yeah. know. So. All right. Well, Dustin, thanks a lot for being on the show today. Thank you, Brandon. Always a pleasure. All right, for everyone else, if this is the first time you're listening to Software Defined Talk, then uh, welcome. You can subscribe by going to softwaredefinedtalk.com or subscribe in the podcast player you're listening to right now. If you would like a sticker, just uh, email your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.